0: Hi, uh, my name is uh, Nico Heller. Uh, This is Reboot 2030, the Democracy School's YouTube channel. My guest today is Delton Jen. Delton is a civil engineer and a geohydrologist with a PhD from Queensland University. He's got 20 years combined experience in groundwater, water resource impacts, geothermal energy, and climate policies that use digital tokens. He's also the founder of um, the uh, Global Carbon Reward Initiative, the GCR, which he founded uh, uh, some time ago. Uh, And from what I understand, partially inspired uh, by a a novel, a science fiction novel. And um, so I'm really curious to see how you would move from being inspired by a novel to setting up a what is growing into a, if you like, an international global think tank. So let me uh, invite in uh, Dalton, who's already here in the waiting room, to tell us a little bit more about himself and about his initiative. So there he is.
1: Dalton. how are you? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you clearly. I'm just yep. uh, turning on the, off the mute and I'm with you. Okay. I'm just gonna grab a cup of tea, is that okay?
0: Okay, no problem. There you are. <laughs> Good to see you.
1: <laughs> I'm going to clean, the, uh, clean the, uh, the lens. I think it's dirty, so excuse me. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. A little dusting, a little dusting helps.
1: That's a lot better.
0: Oh, I can see you much better now. A very sharp image. That's great. And a very good reception. Good good afternoon or good evening to you. Um, we're talking halfway around the world. Isn't that a great thing that we don't have to get onto aeroplanes anymore to have these conversations?
1: Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? Um, it saves so much time and energy. It's amazing.
0: It, it does, but it also allows for a lot more dialogue and debate, doesn't it? Because the, the hurdle to engage with other people uh, is so much lower. In fact, uh, without these innovations, I don't think we would have met or you know, crossed paths so early on in, in, in this project. So that's really, I'm really honored to have you uh, with me. Uh, Dalton, I've said just a very little bit about you uh, personally so far, uh, that you've got a PhD from Queensland, that you are a very experienced um, a geohydrologist and uh, civil engineer, but I guess that you have sort of in the last uh, months or years sort of moved away from this a little bit and focused on a very specific initiative, the Global Reward, a Global Carbon Reward initiative, which you are uh, developing and building up. Now, before we go into it, Adult, let me tell you a little bit about the format uh, of this, uh, of, of Reboot 2030. Um, I'm as much interested in you as a person uh, as I'm interested in, in your scheme, because I find that it does take a certain type of person to 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 develop the kind of ambition and to allow him or herself uh, to 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 think as big as as you do. So I think in terms of role modeling and in terms of you know doing projects moving forward, I think we need to look as much as uh, at the people who do these things as we have to look at at, at their initiatives. So let me start. Um, uh, one, one thing that's really interesting when I when I, when I I sort of looked at uh, at your stuff and I think this is very much the kind of engineer in you. I, I'm going to try to kind of pull you a little bit away from this in our conversation. You'll probably you'll know this because I think there will be some engineers among our audience. But I think in general, it's pretty much a, a sort of a general audience, a, a, a public and, and the kind of engineering knowledge or technical knowledge that our viewers bring to this uh, discussion is probably quite quite limited. Um, so, so there, there's two two aspects here. One is the what, you know, like what do we need to do, and 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 what exactly is a carbon currency, and, and lots of other whats. But and you're really great on the what. Um, but for me, the, the the real important question is is the how, because in in some ways. Um, Ideas are, you know, I want to say, I don't want to say ideas are cheap, uh, but, you know, ideas are great. But unless we can take them off the drawing board and, and move them into something far more concrete, uh, they're actually not serving the purpose, especially in a field like yours, where the implementation is so crucial and so important. So if we can move from the what to the how during this conversation, I think this would be greatly appreciated. So but let me start a little bit first. How did all this come about? Um, I mean, how does an engineer come to you know, essentially kind of operationalize a science fiction novel for the lack of a better way of putting this? Can you give me a little bit about your background? And then, of course, maybe say a few words about the Ministry of the Future, uh, the novel that you have drawn some inspiration from so that we have some better idea of the context of this initiative.
1: Sure, that's, that's a lot to cover. Uh, would you like me to dive in the deep end? And uh, shall I introduce myself for your audience and maybe explain a bit about what motivates me with, as an engineer? Well, I think it reflects a bit on my personality because when I started um, as an engineer, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I vaguely wanted to be an engineer, but I felt I was a bit too creative for engineering, but the architecture degree just really sucked, so I went and did engineering. And then I came out a structural engineer, and I did a couple of years of that, and I found it really boring. So I went back to university and did this, started this really interesting doctorate on the hydrogeology of Heron Island and the Great Barrier Reef. Now, when I started this project, a research project, um, I just jumped in the deep end to study and analyse a system which is really quite complicated, looking at the water flow in the soil, the forests, the ocean, the tides, and the beach, and to understand the dynamics of this whole system and its nutrient transport. So when I did that, um, I didn't really have a lot of, dare I say, detailed supervision. I just had to figure it all out myself, and that's what I did. So um, in doing, solving those problems, I had to come up with new solutions, combining data, with physics, with mathematics, understanding physical processes and how they integrate. And so after doing that, I felt I could solve just about any problem. And I was actually quite good at it, solving these sorts of three-dimensional hydrological problems doing computer simulations. So to cut a long story short, I've always had to deal with difficult technical problems um, under high pressure, a lot of late nights, for clients who don't really understand the complexities, so it's it's it kind of gave me maybe uh, skills by baptism. Now I reached a point in my life where I became somewhat cynical and a bit tired of the fossil fuel industry and just consulting engineering in general. So. I also realized that we're facing a climate crisis. This is back in 2007. So I consciously decided to move into climate. And the first step was to to join a geothermal company, which was another experience. It wasn't actually um, straightforward. It was a very complex experience. After that, I realized that that geothermal company, spent three four hundred million dollars trying to create a geothermal reservoir using a conceptual model that wasn't fit for purpose the conceptual model that they spent three or four hundred million dollars on didn't make sense when imposed on mother nature and i really learned my lesson there that one of the problems organizations have is that the senior management have their own stories which they create for financial reasons, but the actual physics uh, and the system becomes secondary. And during my time there, I couldn't really communicate to senior management, my concerns over the system and and their business model, because I wasn't confident enough that I had the full story. But as soon as the uh, project collapsed, I, I had to leave anyway. From that experience, when I thought about climate, I kind of realised that it's playing out again. We have uh, governments and academics and political leaders who are trying to solve a problem. And I just had the intuition that, hey, maybe the problem really is just the finance and perhaps we need another currency to alleviate the financial problem. That's an intuitive thought. So I started exploring that idea in 2014, that's when I really started. And uh, I got hooked because I found a model I thought made sense from the point of view, we could fund climate mitigation without actually taxing people. We could do it through currency issuance and currency trading, which is not a Tobin tax, by the way, it's, it's a different approach. And from there, I began to ask some serious questions and coming back to what motivated me and why I would do something so strange is because of my experience, I'm used to solving quite complex problems. And i would become curious about this approach and why economists don't talk about it. And so I really needed to find out why the theory of, of standard economics had this blind spot And then I discovered some new ideas. Around 2017, I had a breakthrough where I came to the interpretation that the currency approach, which is the global carbon reward, carbon coin and the Ministry for the Future, actually could be used to address systemic risk. And my thinking then was that uh, systemic risk should be its own objective outright because the classical theory says that we're supposed to manage the costs, okay? You've had this conversation with another person um, not long ago on your show. So people who saw that would understand that the carbon tax, social cost to carbon, it's based on cost-benefit analysis and the negative externality. And, and it's in all the textbooks. It's the Beguvian method. And I came to a different interpretation that the conceptual model was the problem that the conceptual model wasn't sophisticated enough for carbon and i had another realization that carbon is different carbon is different so why is it different well sometimes the answers are so obvious we don't see them you know the 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 visible elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is simply that carbon is the building block of life. So everything that's alive is constructed from carbon. We are eighty-six percent by dry mass carbon.
0: This is also, Thus, by the way, isn't it, why we can date. You know why we can. When we want to sort of know, you know, when something was around, we can do sort of a carbon analysis, and that just tells us something about the age. Uh, you know, of a particular object or whatever, be it bones or whatever.
1: Yes, that's based on isotopes, which is um, beyond the theory that I'm putting forward, because that's a finer detail. But uh, my point is that the market failure in carbon and the very concept of carbon being a pollutant um, is inadequate. We'd have to look at carbon as being a special case and such that the Perguvian theory is not a complete model. You see, what some economists say is that cap and trade or taxes on externalities have worked in the past, say with acid rain, thus we should use it again for carbon. And I'm saying that's not correct. We have to come to the realization that carbon has more complexity related to the physics of carbon because carbon is special. It's um, a very light molecule with symmetry, It has certain electron fields that make it very convenient as a building block for complex molecules. So it stores energy information and structure, DNA, for example. Now uh, that leads on to some really deep thinking, verging on philosophy and physics and uh, chemistry and biophysics. So I, I did a very deep dive on this and I came up with some interesting answers which I'm going to spare the audience for that. But um, coming back to the topic, uh, as I did my deep dive, um, I came to the conclusion that it's very likely that we need a carrot, not a tax, but a positive reward. So the tax is a stick, cap and trade is a stick, subsidies are carrots, but we're missing another carrot which I call a carbon reward. And this, this concept fits very nicely into this symmetric theory, which fits nicely with neoclassical economics. So it's not such a harebrained concept. It, it actually reinforces neoclassical economics and reveals a symmetry and such that I'm putting forward the hypothesis that in fact, we have a market failure with two core problems. We need two explicit prices to manage two objectives. Now, for those people listening and are interested in this topic, Lord Nicholas Stern is saying that uh, we, we need to use the carbon tax to manage the Paris Agreement. And then other economists saying, no, 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 we, we use the carbon tax in cost-benefit analysis. And I'm saying neither of those approaches are gonna work. We need the carbon tax under the Beguvian theory and we need a carbon reward to manage systemic risk. And if we take this approach, it it seems to solve a lot of problems. So it's on the website for the Global Carbon Reward. If anyone's interested, just go to the insights, pricing theory, you'll see, Mm-hmm. We,
0: we we come to that. What what I will do is at the end of the conversation. Um, I mean, if you send me some links that you think are critical, I will then stick them under the under the video so people can go from the video <clears throat> and get the additional information that they that, that that they see. But let's get back to this question of where it all started. So if, I've got a sort of a there's a real narrative uh, of somebody sort of basically really went on a sort of on a, on a journey, on a, on a journey of discovery, uh, really a, a sort of a story about carbon in, in, in a way and its place in the world. Um, and, and from that sort of kind of emerged this idea that uh, uh, you know that rather than such a thing in terms of sticks, it is important to think much more about rewards, about, um, support you know like uh, and and so so apart from the uh the the subsidy model you kind of put a kind of another model which is the carbon currency model uh, uh next to that but um this this book and i think this is really quite interesting the ministry of the future uh, what, what, what i said what is that coming to the story i mean um because it's quite one of the things that i really and i think you're doing this really well is the sort of the, the narrative side of kind of bringing people into your thinking. But I think one of the big problems we have in terms of visualizing any future at the moment is that our futures tend to be dystopian. They tend to be really dark. Um, and, and of course, a dark future is not what I want to sacrifice for, and this combination on the one hand that we need to sort of sacrifice to save our planet on the one hand, and on the other hand that this is going to be a really dark future on the other, it doesn't really make for a very successful kind of like rewarding uh, 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 proposition. Uh, so so So, in a way... The, the, the Ministry of the Future, although it is quite a techie novel from what I hear, I have not read it myself. It's one that appeals to policy honks and to people interested in, in, in that field. But it, the one thing about it is, is that it has a very a positive undertone. It is a sort of it, it is a it is a window into a future uh, that is actually desirable. And, and so, so where, where, where do those two stories cross? The, the story of the Ministry of the Future and your own story? Where do they kind of come together and kind of, in a way, uh, uh, support each other?
1: Yes. Well, first of all, we have to recognise that human beings, we are storytellers. So our whole civilizations live and die on stories. It could be a religious story or a science story, Newtonian physics or Einstein's theory. And... Uh, when it comes to storytelling, I think Kim Stanley Robinson has done a great job there of bringing in the idea in that format of science fiction or cli-fi, near, near-term science. So that, that's one modality. But what motivates me actually is, is quite another level deeper than that. So I'll, I'll explain. Um, if we reflect on human civilization, particularly in the 20th century, Um, We can look at a lot of examples of incredible destruction, such as uh, the atomic bomb land dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the bombing of Syria, Iraq, um, also devastation due to climate change, could be droughts, hurricanes. So each one of those major destructive events actually have a philosophy behind them. So with Nagasaki and Japan at the end of World War II, the philosophy was physics, quantum mechanics, understanding the atom and the potential for a a fission reaction. That that took people some time to really contemplate and understand the essence of matter, quantum mechanics. We go to um, say Syria, there's philosophy that could be um, nihilism, ISIS, terrorism, that's a religious extremism philosophy. And then let's say Hurricane Katrina or something like that. We, We might argue that's because of global warming, which is due to our emissions. And we have a philosophy about economics that drives these results. So what I'm saying is in a nutshell, we have to be very careful with our philosophies because That's how we often frame what we do that has major consequence. Now, when it comes to our dilemma with sustainability, um, the reason I spent so much time and effort in trying to understand the, the theory and the philosophy of carbon is because I could see a potential here for a deep resolution. You see, what could happen to our civilization, our species is that as we experience climate Uh, disruption, global heating, ecological breakdown, we are very much at risk of societal breakdown because the first thing to go will be the political system. Like we have democracy, but you know, that's always subject to problems. And if you have failed states, you have failed governments. Now, under a lot of stress, um, we've got to ask ourselves, what will hold civilization together? So we need a philosophy. And we seem to be lacking one that's coherent so what I could see the potential was uh, or is that the laws, uh, the physical laws of nature seem to be playing a key role in the understanding of carbon pricing. So I did spend a lot of time actually almost to the point of going insane trying to figure out this puzzle now I can't claim that I've got the factual answers because it's still a hypothesis, but. I feel quite confident that this hypothesis has a good chance of being correct. So I'm actually looking for physicists and scientists to join me in reviewing the theory which underpins this economic theory. So I don't talk about this very much at all with people, very very little, I'm quite selective, but I'll explain what I mean. So the point is if, if we really want to understand what we're doing philosophically, we need to know why we would offer a global carbon reward to manage risk. Now, social sciences doesn't seem to offer an explanation for why do we have risks and why do we have efficiencies as objectives? Okay, I mean, obviously, they are objectives. They're intuitive, I suppose. But why do they exist? And so I I look to a more fundamental approach based on the natural sciences and for me, it's intuitive to use thermodynamics. So I've taken a thermodynamic route and I think I've found the relationships that explain the emergence of these concepts. And so it just so happens that the carbon pricing matrix, which is on the website, it does correspond to, in my opinion, this is my hypothesis once again, with the caveat, but it seems to correspond very nicely with the thermodynamics of respiration and photosynthesis except in the economy it's happening at a very large scale. So you have the existing economy, which is combusting organic matter, fossil fuels predominantly, and that's a chemical reaction, which is virtually the same as respiration. And if we're going to draw down carbon, uh, the, the thermodynamics behind that is more or less identical to photosynthesis. So as you know, um, planetary ecosystems based on respiration and photosynthesis is complementary uh, processes. And so I I developed a theory that ties it all together. And and that's really very technical. So I don't want to go into it in any detail, but it's called the Living Systems Economy. And my hope is to be able to have it reviewed and then published. Assuming it's correct, of course. If it's not correct, that's a different matter. But um, it seems to answer a lot of questions. The really difficult questions, actually, in economics, as well as biology. We could talk about it if you like.
0: Okay, so um, th- there are other people working on which, you know, on the, on the face of it look like similar, similar approaches. I mean, one, but of course they, you would instantly say they're not the same. And I, I'm interested in the differences. Um, I mean, one, one, one idea is this idea of a carbon dividend or a climate income, which again is a, is a rewarding kind of approach. Um, and and uh, as you as you quite rightly say, we talked about this uh, like in an earlier uh, reboot uh, uh, live stream. Um, mm-hmm. what, what exactly is is is, is the difference in, in your view? I mean, obviously it's not currency based; it's a different mechanism. Um, but uh, but the, the 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 outcome is is quite similar. Um, I mean, if you um, if you you know if you explain the kind of the you know how a carbon currency would. would work in in, in your view, uh, and and how that then differs from approaches like a climate dividend. Maybe that would kind of in a way help me to understand better where you're coming from exactly.
1: Sure, it's a very interesting question. So I think it was Jung Jin is his name, the the German gentleman, and uh, that climate income, other people call it fee and dividend. Now, uh, in my interpretation, It's actually obvious. If you have a tax and then you recycle the revenue as a dividend for society, there are distinct advantages there because you could solicit more cooperation. Maybe you have the chance to improve on equality or equity. So I quite like the policy. However, although it's attractive on a certain level, it's still problematic because it doesn't address the supply side of energy.
0: Let's, let's, let's Can I just say so something because mm. <clears throat> um, this, this is kind of, in a way, kind of beginning to build a bridge to the how. The, the reason why mm. I was kind of convinced about the, uh, you know, the you know, the carbon dividend or uh, uh, you know, the, the climate income is because it gives politicians a tool to win elections, um, and 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 that always. Helps a policy a great deal if you can say to you know a political party or to a coalition or even to an individual politician, you know take on this idea and it'll pay handsome dividends <laughs> uh, for, for your voters. Now, so what I what I don't quite see at the moment, but you will, I'm sure you will point me to it, is that kind of rollout mechanism with the carbon currency uh, and and so. But you, I'm sure you're going to talk about this. But so as far as the um, the benefits are concerned. There's always kind of two, if you like, a, a supply and a demand side to that, isn't there? So, the, so there's the kind of the kind of end user benefit, and and that is there with a currency and with a uh, a, a dividend. But there's also sort of a, if you like, a business to business dividend. Um, you know, sort of a kind of a policy level dividend uh, with the climate uh, uh, with the cli- uh, climate income. And I quite not quite see that yet with the uh, the carbon currency.
1: Okay, I'll explain it this way. Readers, uh, people who are watching and interested, go read about the carbon pricing matrix, but um, the point is that what fee and dividend is utilising is a carrot. The stick is the fee, the carrot is the dividend. True? Yeah. Why, why would they do that? Well, it's one way to solicit more cooperation. So it's very interesting, carrots and sticks actually do that. There are social science experiments that show categorically carrots and sticks as a combination, solicits more, as a combination solicits more cooperation from groups of people. So there's your answer. It helps people to cooperate. It has still some political limitations, which we could discuss, but let's go over to cap and trade. Cap and trade has been quite successful, actually. It's been introduced into China, it's in the EU and it's doing some pretty good things. It doesn't seem to be sufficient, but it helps. And why is that?
0: It's well, not it, ambitious okay. enough at the moment, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 that, that's the problem, yeah.
1: Yeah, you have some ambition level problems, but politically it also helps people to cooperate. And why is that? Well, it seems to be because you, you can trade the permit. So the permit, which is the emissions permit is tradable, And the economists have this theory that it allows uh, people to achieve what's called a Pareto optimum. This is called the Coase theorem. And the point here is that if you give people the permit to trade, that's the polluters, they they take the permit and say, oh, great, let's trade it with each other until we feel like we have our own justice, that we've got, you know, we've sold our permits if we have too many and they're optimizing for their own financial well-being. And the Pareto Optimum says that everybody's traded their way to happiness in an order. It's a bit like lining up to catch a bus. You, you find your place in the queue, you know who's in front and who's behind, and you don't fight with each other because it's a natural order. It, that's kind of in a very simplistic way, the Pareto Optimum. Now, there, that's two ways to um, solicit more cooperation. There's the carrot and stick, true? And then you got the the tradable permit. Well, the carbon currency is just that it's combining them together. You you have a tradable currency and it's a carrot. So you get the benefit of both. It's not a stick at all. And you're not encumbered by government uh, fiscal budgets and all that rigmarole. You, You bypass the political system. You go to the central banks You say, okay, let's do a deal with all the central banks back this currency. You can issue it from your own new institution. You circumvent the entire financial system because you, you digitally issue it as you need. The central banks come in with a, a guarantee to buy it if it, the value is falling below a prescribed floor price. And that creates the bull market for the currency. So it becomes self-funding and self-sustaining. We haven't actually tested it out as a civilization. So we don't really know what the experience will be like, but my prediction is uh, everyone will love it. Once it um, gets in. Yeah, hmm.
0: I still, haven't fully, I'm still I haven't fully understood it. So my understanding of um, emissions trading is, is that, 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 you know, that, that that governments or economic regions, be it the EU or be it like an individual country uh, would sort of set a, a, an emissions threshold. Uh, if you if if you uh, emit fewer uh, uh, whatever uh, less uh, produce less carbon, uh, you have essentially got some 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 carbon credits uh, that that you can sell, and people who uh, you know create more carbon they can buy those carbon credits to offset any kind of over production that that they have incurred in 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 in, in, in their business now um so 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 this is my my very basic amateurish understanding of 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 carbon trading and of course there's there's a number of aspects to this one is is there's kind of diminishing diminishing returns the more efficient the system gets the, the less incentive there is and you know the less biased they are and the other thing of course is is by selling a carbon credit um, you know like uh, you, you're not actually kind of doing anything for the environment. you're just it's just an accounting device. So it's a bit like um, an airline saying they're kind of carbon neutral by basically buying you know carbon credits or offsetting that, but they're still producing the carbon and it still harms the environment. So there's these kinds of there's these kind of obvious kind of drawbacks uh, to the system. But how does if you could explain to me um, the, the currency, is that sort of like is, is the currency in a way of making that system more efficient? Um, sort of replacing the permits with the currency uh, or, or, or how exactly, how exactly this, I, I can't still quick, quite picture it. Maybe you can explain it uh, uh, once more.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it's potentially very confusing for everybody because I'll just reiterate, we've got carbon tax, cap and trade, subsidy, the reward I'm proposing. We've got carbon offsets, involuntary compliance markets, and then you've got shadow price taxes. Okay, that's a lot, isn't it? And, and what I'm saying is that, Uh, they all relate to each other theoretically. And the way to look at them is that they're all probabilistic. So imagine we're walking into a casino or playing a game of cards or whatever, actually dice, I'll use the metaphor of dice. So imagine staying under one and a half degrees means rolling seven ones of dice. So you need seven ones. That's a probability, right? If you imagine the tax, it gives you a couple dice. The uh, cap and trade gives you a few more dice. The subsidy gives you a couple dice. Fee and dividend gives you a few more dice and keep going. Basically, you, you, you're just improving the probability of getting to your destination because you're accumulating more dice, so you get more rolls to get the seven ones. So what I'm saying is um, the probabilities aren't purely additive, if we bring in the carbon reward, which is the carrot, we're going to get a lot more dice, right? And then there's going to be a synergy effect between those dice and the taxes. So the proposal is that not actually to get rid of taxes, not saying we don't need fee and dividend or cap and trade or offsets. No, not at all. It's the opposite. We need them all. But if you've got the set, the probabilities are gonna maximize to get the seven ones. And that's what you want. Unfortunately, every year that goes past, your probabilities are sinking because we're accumulating more greenhouse gases and getting more positive feedback. So you gotta be very careful that civilization doesn't uh, lose, lose its way before we materialize the full probabilities of all the policies. Because it's not also, it's not just market policies, uh, Nico, it's, it's also regulatory. So they're more dice. The regulatory would be regulation standards, laws, ecocide laws, and Green New Deals, which are fiscal. So if you want to maximise the probabilities, you've got to bring them all in. However, there is a reason to believe that the carbon reward will shift the probabilities very significantly.
0: That's no, but opinion. okay. So let me let me rephrase it. And make it even more simple. So, um, who who would mint your 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 carbon coin, um, and and who would be the buyer and who would be the seller of that carbon coin?
1: Okay, we need a new institution to mint it. An international, I call it the Carbon Exchange Authority. It's just a convenient name, CEA Carbon Exchange Authority. It'd be have a headquarters a bit like the World Bank or the IMF, maybe in Switzerland, who knows. And they would have the job job of managing the whole thing. And maybe they'd have their building next to the Bank of International Settlements or something like that. You know, why not? And um, they issue it to all the businesses in the world based on the rules. And the rules are codified as a carbon exchange standard. Now, obviously, one group of people in the middle of wherever aren't going to be able to service the whole world because we've got many millions, billions of people and so on. So you have to decentralise it by um, certifying mitigation assessments. So you, you invite all the engineers and scientists to certify themselves to assess for certain rules in the whole standard. You pass a test, you pay money, you get certified, and then you're given jobs to do. You're allocated the work. And the kind of checks and balances to try and remove the corruption. The, the actual mitigators, they have to sign on to a, a voluntarily sign on to a service level agreement, which lasts more or less indefinitely. It's a very long-term service level agreement uh, that commits them to follow the standards for monitoring, verification, reporting that's relevant to their particular technology. And okay, so
0: there's a there's a there's a governance there's a governance structure that essentially kind of governs that new uh, uh, Sort of carbon currency, carbon coin. Um, but okay, so uh, and if I uh, do I as a business buy those carbon coins, or am I getting them allocated on some basis? And once I have them, can I really sell them on to anyone at whatever market rate is the current rate? How how, how does the, the the trading? I mean, I'm, I mean compared to Bitcoin or to, you know, any other kind of uh, 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 cryptocurrency, how, how does that how does that work? And how how in that process of trading? Do those benefits that you're talking about occur? Well, first of all, it's
1: not a cryptocurrency. It'd be an official currency, but it's not money. So if you went to the supermarket, they wouldn't accept it because they're not allowed to. What it is, is a financial asset. If you took your carbon currency, or will call it carbon coin, to a polluter and said, hey, do you want to buy my carbon currency as an offset? They will say, yeah, we'd love to, but we're not allowed because by the law, it doesn't transfer ownership of carbon. So the carbon currency is not a carbon offset. It's not money. It's a financial asset and a price signal. So if you um, had a business and you earned some carbon currency for decarbonizing, you then keep it as a store of value, like a bank account, a savings account, until you want to sell it. When you sell it, you just sell it into the global market for uh, euros, because I I think you're in the European Union, I assume. Uh, If you're in the US, you probably trade a few US dollars, and so on, and so forth. So it's convertible to every currency, according to an exchange rate, which is discovered. How is it discovered? By people trading it. You see, in this monetary approach, there's something very special going on here, which you don't have in cryptocurrencies. Here we'd have a central bank public finance guarantee, which basically says if the exchange rate of our carbon currency falls below a floor, then they will buy it up. And the central banks have limitless capacity to do that.
0: I mean, how, how well that works for you, I just sort of I was just seen in the recent kind of like the sort of meltdown of this kind of like stable coins. But yeah, there is a <clears throat> there, there there is an inherent risk in that and I think at the moment the market would be quite cynical about, you know about, about that aspect uh, but uh, and I'm sure you've been following the whole the whole sort of like meltdown in cryptocurrencies uh, yourself um, but but so, so, so basically I'm accumulating um, carbon coins or carbon uh, uh, currency as a result of reducing my carbon footprint as, as, as a business uh, and, and I can then trade that in um and, and I, that's a store of value and i hold it in carbon currency but of course the value of the carbon currency will fluctuate over time as because the uh, because it's traded um and you know if i come to a point I, and i might be quite opportunistic i might be selling it when you know when it's worth a lot and i might be holding on to it when it's worth little just as you would if you're trading in currency um so um but 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 why would i not want to be compensated in dollars on euro to start with why would i want to have that intermediary currency uh, uh uh and and have the kind of the exchange risk that comes with that
1: yes because uh, you would want to hold on to it because this floor price i mentioned it's uh, prescribed and it's rising over time so it starts low and then it rises towards us up uh, for a schedule which is calibrated such that we get the amount of mitigation we need to achieve our Paris goal or climate uh, objective. So the preliminary analysis suggests it's gonna rise from a low value soon, it's in, soon as it's implemented and possibly rise up to $200 to $300 by mid-century. So if that happens over say 30 or 40 years, um, holding on to the currency is actually not a bad investment. So, y- anyone who holds it they will not be in a hurry to sell it uh but it's highly liquid so someone will buy it from it.
0: sure but 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 why does it need that new financial instrument i mean any kind of like trader would tell you that there is certainly now looking at the 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 current state of the, the cryptocurrency market will tell you that if they would have put that money into pension funds Uh, they would have done much better over the last 10 years, you know, looking, looking, looking back. There was a time, of course, when it looked very, very differently. Um, But, uh, and it's a very volatile market. So, so, so what is the, I mean, clearly you would want to have that value stored in such a way that it kind of appreciates with the general growth of the economy and and all the rest. That's, that's what you, what, what you would want to see. But why, um, why would you want, I mean, I can see, let me put it this way, like, eight months ago, I could have seen that this is a sexy instrument because of the whole, you know, because it was a very, seen as a very sexy new kind of like market opening up, you know, but is it, is it, is it sort of, is it central um, to, to, to your project? Or could you equally just sort of say, well, it doesn't have to be a cryptocurrency. It, it could also be, uh, it could, uh, it could also be like just a, a, a way to share portfolio, you know, like, like a pension fund, um, yeah, I
1: think I have to clarify something here. Uh, it's not a cryptocurrency. You see, um, although it's called carbon coin in the fictional novel, the, the phrase coin is used to denote a cryptocurrency, but it's not. It's technically, it's called a carbon currency. So, sorry, tech, it's not a crypto, sorry, it's not a carbon coin, because that refers to a crypto. It's really a carbon currency. So it's an official
0: I mean, essentially what it is, it's like to use a technical term. It's an NFT, a non-fungible token, uh, which, which becomes tradable, I believe. Yeah.
1: No, uh, I wouldn't call it a non-fungible token. No, it's highly fungible because it's all to the same standard. So each unit of carbon currency refers to one ton CO2 equivalent mitigated for a 100 year duration. That's the fungibility. Now, why, why use the currency and why allow it to trade? That's a, that's a very important question. Well, the answer is um, it pulls in private wealth to buy the currency so the central banks don't have to print money to buy it themselves. You see, the central banks are there to create the bull market, but the private sector comes in to buy it. So how do, okay, so, that's
0: interesting. So how does that work then? Because that's, that's obviously that brings the private sector potentially into a situation where they have an interest in this. Uh, so oh, how, absolutely. How, but
1: that, that's the nature of That's the inherent fundamental nature of it. So one way to understand this is to think about the, the opposite policy, which is cap and trade. So in cap and trade, you know, the government sets a cap, it issues the permits, which yeah. are tradable. Why do they trade the, the permit? because they're looking for the least cost, true? Yeah. In, in that policy. Sure. That's what, what they call costian bargaining, Coase theorem, yeah. to achieve the Pareto optimum. Well, it's the same concepts, but reversed for mitigation. So in the mitigation experience, what happens is that anyone can buy carbon currency, and the motivation is not to minimise your costs, it's to maximise your profits. So private actors, including citizens, you and I, anyone can buy it and people will buy it to maximise profits. They'll look at it and say to themselves, well, I can invest in the share market or I could buy carbon currency and I think today I'll buy some carbon currency because I think it's a good place to put highly liquid, you know, assets. So everyone will do that. And what they're doing effectively is they're experiencing cohesion bargaining. Why? because we're redistributing the cost of mitigation to the private sector. Nobody's going to trade to hurt themselves. Everyone's going to trade to try and benefit themselves. And thus we achieve this concept of a Prudhoe optimum. Now, um, you'd have to look at the curves to kind of understand how it plays out over a long period of time.
0: Just to understand. The- so, so, so just understand how. So, you know, I, as a private investor, institutional investor or whatever, I can um, in, in that in that model in in that future um i, I will be able to buy you know like uh, you know carbon currency to whatever value like say a, a million or 100 million dollars worth of carbon currency uh and yeah. and hold that as an investment uh until such day that i want to sell it again is that correct correct okay you can so, buy so, so so this this essentially creates a a, a pretty conventional, if you like, currency market, that is where people buy and sell currency according to market principles. Uh, and there's a second, a second dimension to this though, uh, by creating that market, you're also creating the, if you like, the kind of the dynamic infrastructure that now allows the distribution of carbon currency rewards uh, to those who reduce their, their footprint. So, so there's, a, there's a, a separate group of beneficiaries who will receive, uh, you know, uh, you know, as, as, as a kind of as an acknowledgement of their efforts to reduce uh, their carbon footprint, they receive, receive instead of receiving, you know, pounds sterling or, 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 or dollars or euros, they receive uh, carbon currency uh, uh, in, instead. And this is a highly liquid asset, which they can, like any other business, also trade. So the actual market in tradable carbon currency is significantly larger and has to be because it needs to be a liquid market significantly larger than the actual reward kind of structure that sort of sits on top of that is that is that a fair way of putting it i think so you're absolutely
1: right in that the money is created and given initially to the people or businesses that reduce their emissions or pull carbon out of the atmosphere and so what we're talking about actually has a name it's called the seniorage value of the currency as it's minted into reality it's given and so the recipient the awardee has that seniorage gain and then it's traded and i'll I'll comment also on something you said earlier You, you mentioned pension funds or you know you could invest in pension funds or why invest in the carbon currency there is a big difference it's very different to the stock market and all markets actually because If you invest in say the share market, that market can experience recessions and financial crises and value will drop, true. But it can't happen with the carbon currency because the floor price guarantee, which is calibrated to the Paris Agreement. So one point here is that if there is volatility or fear in the marketplace, people will go, usually they go to the US dollar but they can also go to the carbon currency because that's even more secure than the US dollar. It, it has very low sovereign risk because every central bank, theoretically, every central bank in the world will be backing it. Effectively, the way it's designed through this notion of carbon quantitative easing, it's backed by the world economy, literally.
0: So there's, that's I mean, the it's sort of to, to, to look at it. To, 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 another way of sort of thinking about it is it's like, if you take the, um, the, the carbon trade, uh, uh, model. Um, A, it's, of course, quite a bureaucratic model, because it it doesn't have the same kind of efficiencies as a kind of a freely traded, uh, you know, like a a commodity would have. But also, there are far fewer Essentially, fewer buyers. So, so you know, if I have a carbon credit because I have kind of coming below the kind of the cap, and I can trade the difference, I need to find a buyer who's in above the cap because only that person would be interested in buying it. Whereas in, uh, in 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 your model, you know, anybody who has got money to invest may may want may may want to buy uh, my carbon currency, and so I have. It's much more of a seller's market in that sense and and, and benefits the seller um, disproportionately compared to the other model. Is that that a fair way of putting it? Completely, yes.
1: Um, If the carbon currency were implemented, it would literally be in the deepest, most liquid market in the world. And that's the foreign exchange currency market. It's the biggest market. So for example, if we need $3 trillion per year, of the seniorage value, that's equivalent to one day's trade in the foreign exchange currency market because it trades about $3 trillion a day. So we only need to capture like 0.3% of that market into the carbon currency and its funding itself. Um, that, that's the power of the, uh, financial, uh, the currency market.
0: It's, it's 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 so 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 just to 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 wrap that sort of section up so the um uh the global carbon reward is essentially if you like my ability as an owner of a carbon currency asset to be able to to sell that and to 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 monetize that in a freely traded market is that is that a fair way of so this is essentially um what, what the the reward consists of is that um
1: yeah, yeah I, I'm trying to keep up with your questions. So I apologize if I'm falling behind because I'm thinking about lots of things at once. But tell me if I'm not answering your question. But I'm just let, let me let me rephrase
0: it. Um mm-hmm. so the, the global you're sort of saying, you know, we have to move from sticks to carrots. And you're saying that the global carbon reward is clearly sort of the carrot side, a bit like the you know, the climate income or the climate dividend, except it works very differently. And we've talked about the differences. Um, but the global carbon reward really is all about my ability to freely trade the kind of the, the money I have made by spending, you know, by producing less carbon. Isn't that that's that's essentially. And what, what kind of enables, you know, that reward is the kind of the market that is created through that carbon currency.
1: Yes, maybe um, I can clarify with a few statements. So uh, this might help make this a bit clearer. First of all, all this discussion about the trading of the carbon currency and by currency traders, that's simply to allow the private sector to pick up the cost, knowing that they're buying an investment over a period of time. And providing liquidity.
0: I mean, that is another big aspect.
1: Providing liquidity. Now we, we create the currency as the reward, which is the incentive for mitigation to help companies and people decarbonize. Why is it different to a carbon credit? Well, the thing is, and you touched on it, carbon credits often are for offsetting. Yeah. And uh, as a concept, people might not be aware of this, but as a concept, carbon credits and offsetting in themselves, they're not really a mitigation policy, okay? What they, what they exist for is to lower the cost of mitigation for the polluters. That's all it's doing in compliance markets. So this is why the carbon credit trading in the offset market aren't such a big deal because they're not really taking us much further along to the Paris goals. They're kind of a bit of a side dish,
0: a bit of a side event. There's another interesting thought that just came to my mind. If I was a venture capitalist um, Mm. or sort of a private equity firm. I could now essentially become quite a sort of a a hawk and I could look around the economy and could look at the the bad polluters and say, actually I can bring serious kind of environmental efficiencies for the lack of a better word uh, to this firm and I can monetize those gains. I can go in, restructure, reorganize along environmentally friendly, climate friendly lines, a business, free up the, the money tied up in the carbon if you like uh, and, and, and and sell that and then sort of sell on the business. So this would be a sort of a, a restructuring kind of, you know, turnaround uh, kind of like proposition and I, that there may well be funds in future that can literally kind of go around and look at, you know, uh, polluters and say, well, now here we have a mechanism that allows us to basically sort these businesses out the same way as we've gone in, in the past to make, you know, very highly bureaucratic uh, firms more efficient in in terms of sort of economic efficiency. Uh, We can now go in and sort of say we make them more environmentally efficient uh, in environmental efficiency. And that's, it's a very, very interesting thing. I think I get it now and it's been it's I mean it's a highly complex idea and I'm sure one of the difficulties you must be having all the time is to come up against people and not having really been given or not been given the time to really kind of help people to kind of sort it out in their thinking where that sits and what it can do it's it really is quite a revolutionary idea that you're having there. I totally get this now 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 let, let me move on to the very last and we're kind of running a bit short on time now but let's move on to the very last uh, uh, the question I have and this is really kind of going solidly to the how i mean okay i totally i'm sold on this idea uh but where do we go from here i mean you know uh, you know one thing is to say we have to have another kind of world bank uh, another thing is to actually get another world bank Um, how do we so so um, do you have a timeline is there any kind of do you have a support network of you know heavy hitting industrialists or or other people who basically can see your vision and can see also how private capital you know could could make a difference here How, how do you move forward with this
1: how we move forward is that somebody watching this program says i want to help this guy and they donate some money and they put us in touch with some philanthropists and Companies who so if somebody would it.
0: sort of say, here's 5 million uh, you know, Australian dollars or 10 million Australian dollars, mm-hmm. given the enormity of the size of this thing, would that not just be a drop in the ocean and would that not be money down the train? I mean, what would you effectively do with relatively small trenches of funding, given the size of the challenge? I mean, how do you scale it's, this to the point yeah. where it actually becomes a reality?
1: Sure. It's quite ironic, actually, say 5 million, because that's quite close to the amount of money we need to run a demonstration so we run a demonstration with a bunch of companies that have different types in different sectors of the economy and we do a kind of like a virtual demonstration and interview people to check on how it works for the decision makers and then we do some macroeconomic modeling and we package it and advocate the policy now uh how does it get implemented because you know that that's a big question I'm going to answer that a little bit uh, philosophically because how it actually happens, I can't predict, but in a more general sense, I would say it's going to happen much more easily than people realise. And the reason is that in historically, in historical terms, changes to the monetary system have almost always happened in the background, uh, not through a democratic process. It happens when there's some realisation at the level of elites that we need a change to protect the integrity of the system. And once that clicks in, it can happen quite quickly. One example is the Bretton Woods conferences. So end of World War II, 44 nations, they got together for a few weeks here and there, and then they decided under the US guidance to to set up the uh, US dollar backed by gold. Now, who voted for that? Nobody when Nixon declared the end of the gold window, who voted for that? Nobody, it was just declared. Actually probably took him 10 minutes to announce it. Similarly, just happened recently, last year I think, the exchequer in the UK announced by letter that he gave the Bank of England an expanded mandate mandate to target net zero. Who voted for that? I don't think anyone did. So that event actually at the Bank of England is, is very important historically because that's a sign to me that there's a shift in perception that central banks have got to take care of climate risk because that really, that's what it boils down to. At the beginning of our interview, i talked a lot about risk versus cost concepts and uh, the formalization that I'm putting forward says actually that it is the responsibility of the central bank community. And this is probably the most important point from a institutional discussion that the central banks currently don't understand or think that they're responsible for the Paris Climate Agreement, article two. And the analysis I put forward says complete opposite. They are categorically responsible and they're gonna have to um, come together to consider carbon quantitative easing and a parallel currency. And I think there's a growing realization that the economy as a system isn't anti-fragile. It's not going to survive extreme climate change or any kind of abrupt disturbance when you um, you got eight billion people who need to be fed, need energy, and they're quite well armed, you know. So um, we've got to think clearly about this and get the structure right. So, so how sorry yeah, no
0: go on, yes, please.
1: So how will it come into play? I think it just comes into play through a few countries adopting it as a pilot, and then it gets brought into some conference, maybe the NGFS or UNFCCC, it gets thrown around, kicked around. Um, Some people say it's a good idea. Some people say it's a bad idea. But once it gets traction, the political point is when leaders ask, what's it going to cost? And when they see that the costs are taken off their balance sheet, it won't appear on the fiscal budget of governments, corporations or individuals, everyone says, oh, yeah, we can fund this by taking the cost off our balance sheet. We create this asset private sector is happy to buy, it's a transfer of wealth from other assets into the carbon currency. But hey, you know, that's not such a big deal. You win some, you lose some. But we then have a reward system to pay everyone to mitigate at speed and scale. Plus, we get the cooperation and maybe taxes and that become a more serious uh, contender to to complement the reward. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's an evolution.
0: And of course, I mean, you know, a lot of these arguments are based on a sort of either-or argument. So they, it's almost as if you'd have to choose between, a, you know, a kind of a carbon dividend and a carbon currency. No, you don't have to choose. Do both. You know, there's no, there's no need to choose between those two or between any of these. Uh, they can happily coexist. Very, very good. Now, part of reboot is is uh, is to the idea behind reboot 2030 is very much. To, to engage with and to, if you like, to entangle into a dialogue. Uh, people like yourself, highly ambitious, focused people who have a long term play uh, 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 going. And uh, and it, it's so interesting, there's a couple of other kind of reboot uh, 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 contributors, which I think you'll probably get on really quite well with. Um, um, and. Um, John Bunsell is like a simple, have a look at this, he's, he's, he's based in, uh, in, in, in in London, but he comes to, to his kind of proposition also very much from a business perspective, uh, from a very old, honorable sort of family business tradition himself, and, and he's kind of applying the kind of competitive uh, concepts that he knows from business uh to, to his project very interesting so i mean I, so i can only coach now but um one of the, so one of the things be, between behind reboot is is that we that we too take a sort of a longer perspective and kind of follow you um over over years if you like because it is entirely clear and anybody who would think that you turn this around in six months obviously would be would be silly. Uh, I mean, nope, nobody would think that but there is a sort of a 10 year window isn't there, where we really do have to put those solutions in place. And if we were to meet up again saying in, in six to 12 months time, um, how could we make sure that we're not repeating the same conversation that that the conversation has moved on what do you think is within that kind of six to 12 months time frame where you consider say well this is a short this isn't going to basically do it but this is a sort of a small step in the right direction what, what would be what would be a kind of a, a reasonable kind of if you like topic for a sort of six to twelve months down the line
1: for me it's very straightforward it's sponsorship funding I can't do a demonstration of the policy without that money. And the the ask is between six and 7 million, roughly. With that money, we can do an international demonstration and inform the whole world that this is an option that needs to be looked at. Unless it's on the table for discussion, it doesn't really exist as a policy. So um, the point here is it's not just a policy, it's, it's also a reconfiguration or revision of the conceptual model. The so, so maybe,
0: maybe uh, if we had another conversation in six months' time, and rather than focusing on the on the carbon currency and the the, the global carbon reward itself, to, to to look at this as sort of a startup proposition, uh, or, or as as as, as, a, as a business proposition, uh, presumably backed by a business plan and 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 so on and so forth, um, and um, and sort of have a discussion about the hurdles. I mean, again, you know, this is you know. The thing, and somebody sets himself up like the way you do, uh, failure is never far. You know, it's always around the corner because, of course, it's easy to fail when you're being this ambitious. I mean, I mean, how couldn't you? I mean, and you, you do. Clever enough to know this too, so you must have a fairly kind of good relationship with this concept of failure to even allow yourself to go there. Um, so, but but I think so. This is not about kind of sort of seeing whether he's failed, but this is about sort of because there's other people who are in a very similar situation to to you, and you know who basically see the enormity of the problem, have an amazing revolutionary kind of solution, but they can see the stretch. The, the 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 kind of the conceptual and the mental and the kind of economic stretch that somebody has prepared to kind of go along with. Um, and instead of say, well, yeah, sure, this is on the never-never. It, it may never go to something. It might be six or seven million down the train, but this is a worthwhile investment because even if it doesn't turn into a global cap- a carbon market, it may still kind of have other kind of unintended consequences that are as beneficial or that leads to other kind of futures. So maybe maybe that's the way to do it. If you have another conversation in six months' time, we start with a very just a really limited, Intro about you know the, the global carbon uh, you know uh, reward so that people know what what, what are you kind of trying to, to to get funded but then focus on um on on, on on the actual journey of getting there because I think this is this is really where we can learn from each other and you know and I think the kind of the kind of the difficulties you encounter and the cynicism and the kind of I mean. They used to say in England, there's a million ways of killing a cat, you know, and and I'm sure you've come across many of those already, you know, people telling you forget it, you know, it can't be done. Um, So and you're still standing. So this is a really good thing. So how does that sound if we kind of focus on on, on something like that and really kind of see whether we can chronicle kind of if you like kind of develop the narrative of how this develops?
1: We definitely could and we should do it. It'd be fun. And it's also kind of humorous a certain level because it's also in the, the ministry for the future in fact um my name's in the novel is the chen paper so um the point though that that i think stan robertson didn't know about uh because i didn't really have a chance to talk to him about it is that um it wasn't just a carbon currency concept it was actually a, a an attempt, a revision of the economic theory to resolve a whole lot of questions. So yes, we want to know how how can we implement it? How does it work? What does it mean? But also, why does it work? For me, um, this is philosophically one of the most important questions. Why does it fit in with neoclassical economics? Why does it address the degrowth, growth growth issue? Why does it make sense to manage risk this way? Why, why, why? And, And these are the questions I said earlier It comes back to the stories we tell and the philosophies we use. So at some point in the future, if we do survive this climate crisis, I think um, society, or even if we don't, society and humanity wants to know what's gone wrong. Why can't we get it together? Because you might ask, is there something innately wrong with us as a species? Is it something innately wrong with the human condition? Maybe we're never supposed to live on this planet in peace, and, you know, holding hands.
0: Maybe so, the virus after all, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, we could be very dystopian and pessimistic. So th- that the point and the value of the underlying theory is actually to reconnect with nature itself, because physics ultimately are supposed to be the natural laws. And if those laws allow us a pathway to uh, a safe climate and a preserved biosphere, then that's, in a sense, the natural place for us to look, to have that story, to know where to go. Because if we haven't got the right story, philosophically, maybe it ends up being a destructive story. For example, cap and trade, oh, sorry, not cap and trade, carbon offsets. Carbon offsets are a story, aren't they, credit markets? And and, uh, that's a story that's quite popular. But will it take us to a safe place? That's questionable. Um, We want to look at the other options too and ask, does the story fit in with degrowth does it fit in with well-being does it fit in with the preservation of species and biodiversity what about the indigenous people in the amazon we're just going to forget about them so uh, i'm looking at all these things and trying to figure out does it resonate does I mean, it resonate in lots of ways
0: that's right i mean there's a thing of course when you're kind of dealing sort of like in, in environments of high uncertainty um uncertainty at every level and high complexity combined with high uncertainty. Um, in, in those kinds of situations, I think there's different approaches. One would be to kind of try to figure out which one of the 10 different approaches is the most successful one. And this is like trying to bet on winners. And we've done this in the economy and it never really quite worked. Um, we've done this, you know, so, so a much more sensible approach to me appears to be what you're doing. It's not a kind of try to figure out which of the existing approaches might go furthest or might be the most successful or most sustainable, but it's sort of to come up with your own. Because at this point, I think what, what we do need is 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 we need sort of a broad, kind of like assault. Um, We don't need these kind of like, we don't need to have group think on focusing on one or two kind of perfect solutions, silver bullets. What we do need is we need this broad based approach. And I think what you are putting forward kind of cuts across uh, a a, a lot of these and is complementary to a a lot of these and non-threatening as well, because I think this is also the problem. I mean, the whole climate movement can be as competitive as any movement, you know, and there's there's a lot of infighting, well, why, why should this guy get the time and not that guy, you know, sort of thing. So so in a way, I think it's really good to kind of, there's no point speculating whether something else may or may not work, but it's much more important is to kind of try to figure out how we can make your thing work. And, and so I think this is a really, really interesting conversation to continue. Um, uh, we've slightly overrun, but it was to be expected. I mean, this is such a huge topic that, uh, as you said at the very beginning, it's it's a long story. Um, mm. But anyway, thank you very much. I mean, maybe I mean, Shelby, sort of say we we'll kind of continue this in six to twelve months. Are you happy with that, or how do you feel?
1: I'd love, I'd love to come back and talk. Yeah, about it. It was, uh, even if by that <laughs> stage
0: you are kind of like better known than George Soros, you still feel you can talk to a, you know, ordinary <laughs> human like me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh,
1: I, I'll try not to let it go to my head, you know, uh, so <laughs> I'll keep you in my diary and I'll my personal assistant will give you a call.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Listen, listen, Delta, this has been really, really a great pleasure. And it's amazing that it's now evening where you are and my day only begins. If the world was to come to an end, you at least can live or die with the knowledge that you've lived a little longer than me, you know, so I guess. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's that's the thing now you're an
1: optimist aren't you <laughs> uh, oh yes indeed
0: D- Delton, thank you very very much it's been really really interesting it's been very technical um but i think if people mm-hmm. kind of um listen to it carefully they will gain a lot from it if you could send me the links that you think should go with this t- uh, talk and i'll put it up on, on both on youtube but also on democracyschool.com forward slash perspectives which is where we kind of also on the Democracy School blog, where we also have the uh, 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 th- those uh, streams, those videos. So send me the stuff, and I added it to it. Um, and and if you have a single like like a two par- like a one paragraph pitch, and uh, that you sort of say, if somebody's out there, we're looking for X, Y, and Z. Um, don't bury it in your website. You know, like put it up front and 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 let me know about it. as well. we can put that under the video too. So who knows who listens to this. Um, it's good for it to be out in the open. You are basically looking for, for business partners, for investors, for people to join you on this journey. And, and hopefully when we talk again in, in, in six, eight months time, uh, we'll be able to kind of see how, how that process is developing.
1: Thank you so much, Nico. I'd love to do that. And you're so kind and generous. And uh, I definitely will follow up with that. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. And um, have a good time and best of luck. I will be following it with great interest. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.